Okay, folks, now, um, I would really like people to chip in if you have a different idea or a way of doing this. I'm, I'm, you know, inventing, making it up as I go along, being ad hoc in, in making some of the suggestions I'm about to make. Um, one thing that we were thinking, um, uh, the, the conveners of this, of this seminar, is to turn now to the uh, postgraduate, postdoctoral observers um, for about 300 words equivalent of, of observation or perhaps um, the, the, the presentation of questions that have come up for you as not having been addressed or um, your further questions that might be asked. Um, and certainly um, for those who are no longer here for you know, various reasons, um, what we would love is for those 300 words also to come to us in written form at, at, some, at some point. Uh, because what we're also doing in this, in this um, final session is thinking about outcomes, where we might go from here if we want to do something more. Um, this, the seminar was very much conceived of, which has been part of the... Um, it's refreshing aspect really it's very much conceived of as a one-off you know we're, we're bringing people together for an interdisciplinary conversation and then seeing where we might go um, um, from here um, or, or not um, so another thing that would be great is as we perhaps go around the circle is those who um, have been presenters so not as it were um, um, observers to also say if they wish um, none of this is obligatory um, to raise further questions, to make comments, um, further reflections, especially perhaps those who, who spoke yesterday, uh, who may have had further reflections on the basis of what they heard today. So um, you, what you might also do in your comments, um, whoever you are, is say what you conceive of um, inequality kind of going forward from here. Is there um, do, you, do you have a new perspective? Is there something you'd, in your work um, that you'd like to take forward now? Um, um, I seem always to want to think in instrumental ways and then pull back. Um, so, so, yeah, let's open. I suggested going around the circle, but we don't need it to be quite so formal and orderly, but it is just sort of a way of proceeding at least. But we could also run it as a bit of a Quaker meeting where people kind of speak from different parts of the room as they feel moved to do so. So, um, I, I, yeah, it's very much up to you. What, what do people like to do? Go around in a circle or speak from different parts of the room? Roger, we haven't heard much from you today. You've been a quiet observer, so... So, yeah. Do you want a view on that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, w I would like a view on oh, how do you how you'd like to proceed across the our final hour together. Uh, I, I think Quakerism has got a lot to be said. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting in silence. It's certainly my Socratic method where you point at people. Though <laughs> I wasn't referring to my own case course. Um, so, uh, I mean, one one. one uh, sort of quick reflection is um, uh, I I, mean, I I think I've got a lot out of every single presentation one thing one thing that I'm inclined to think is that uh, I'm right <laughs> or I was right to suggest that, that, that there's, some, there's something to be said for these abstract principles 
Um, and not necessarily the one that I was, you know, that I was advocating, um, because um, I guess for two two reasons really. One is that I'm just inclined to think uh, rationality is um, general rather than particular. So, so what I mean by that is this: that if um, yeah, let, let's say I uh, pinch Tarek quite hard and he objects and says you shouldn't do that it's good reason for you not to do that and I say well, what is it and he says well because it hurts me um, in a way he's right but that doesn't really capture the, 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 the real reason which is that I, I shouldn't really cause suffering to any sentient being, not just him, not just human beings, any sentient being, uh, with you know, without there's something to be said against doing that to any sentient being, and that seems to me an undeniable abstract principle, actually. I, and I think it's even one that I would say that I have knowledge of. Mm. I don't think we know a great deal in ethics, but that's something I think I know. It, there is always a reason not to cause suffering. Uh, to a sentient being, unless it's deserved. And I've got my doubts about dessert, but uh, I'll put those on one side. So I think rationality is, is general. So I think that does apply to, uh, th that general way of thinking, I think, does apply to uh, equality and inequality as well. So I think there, there will be some abstract, maybe an abstract principle, or maybe a bunch of abstract principles. And um, so that's the... the I guess the uh, a priori kind of argument for the approach, but there's, I think there is also a practical argument, which is that quite a few times people have said, uh, "Oh, it's you know just horribly complex. How do we sort things out?" And if you haven't got uh, principles to do that, then there's nothing you can do really. I mean, all you can do is say, "Well." just give me a case and I'll tell you how I see it and we'll make a decision on that basis which I can't articulate reasons for which doesn't seem to me a good way to go so I think um, uh, let's let's take I thought uh, Ashwini I thought brought out some very uh, nice aspects of the, of the complexity uh, involved you know for example when you said um, uh, you know if you uh, if you decrease uh, inequality, as it were, in one group, or you decrease discrimination in one group, that may increase it in another. Uh, and, it, and, there, and there may be all sorts of other um, effects, consequences, implications. What do we do? Well, if we've got a number of foundational principles, we might be able to work out that you know, some of those inequalities are worth the price and some aren't. We don't just have to sort of, yeah, I wasn't suggesting you, you, you were saying we should do this, but we don't have to stand back and say, oh, let's do this, because that just kind of feels right. <coughs> so that was a bit uh, self-referential. Yeah, thank you. Um, could we turn to the, to the um, postgraduate observers or their comments? Not to put you on the spot, but... We did ask, so I'm sort of, you know, we're honouring our, our request. 
just to put this in full context, I told them that I'd want their 300 words next week. <laughs> Not immediately. <laughs> but perhaps you should be thinking about the beginnings of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But you, you may have a few things you want to exactly. try out by way of response. Yeah? I'd like to try out some, some things. Um, firstly, uh, a kind of short anecdote that, that for me very much captures so many of the issues that came up today, um, especially regarding the way in which we tend to measure inequality in economic terms, but it also plays out very clearly in humanitarian terms. Um, so in South Africa at the moment, there is an incredibly severe drought. Um, and as a result, uh, huge water access problems. Mm -hmm. And recently, Action Aid International <coughs> released a water report in South Africa about the availability of water and the ways in which industry and government should change their kind of good water practices. Um, and they had some case studies, and one case study was about a community in the far north of the country where women run everything and because of the drought, they have now instituted a canal system. So water runs from higher up in the mountain down to this community, which means that they only ever get water at about 9 o'clock at night. That's when, that's when their water happens. And because the women do everything, they are the ones who have to go collect the water. Um, but now, people know where they collect water and at what time they collect water. So when women go to collect water, they get raped. So, this is, this is a kind of a, a moment of inequality that is not measured um, economically. It is one that's very much measured in terms of um, environment and in terms of unpaid work time and in terms of gender and especially in terms of violence. And I think that it's, I think that it's really valuable to keep those kinds of things in mind because it's not only about, about money and about the labor force. Then another thing that I thought was um, that, that I thought as somebody coming from the humanities was very interesting is that there's a there's this kind of um, assumption that while while we are here while we are speaking we are relevant and we are important and we make a difference um, at least I mean law sociology economics um, and I mean I'm a musician so I, I tend to under underestimate my own disciplinary relevance people but um, I think it's I think it's really important from a humanities point of view to also reflect critically on the relationships of power that are reinforced by the fact that we get to sit in a room on really comfortable seats and eat a lot of really nice food and talk about inequality um, and that those kinds of reflections are called navel-gazing or cynicism is quite troubling, um, you know, and I think that is what the humanities really can bring, is that kind of, that kind of critical perspective that is not about how we can make a difference, but also about how we reinforce <coughs> our resources. And then the last thing that is for me an omission is, uh, I would have been very interested to hear something said about, um, <laughs> about um, reparations. Yeah, that's me. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's worth the thing. Louisa. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, following. Yeah, it's kind of related to some of the things you said. 
But sort of my one of some of my sort of questions that I leave with is sort of why inequality now here. It's kind of like assume that it's just not the kind of flavor of the month, but it's kind of like I can't really understand what it's trying to be, be a response to. And it seems that it's not a coincidence that there's a lot of uh, pressure on diversity, on representation, on issues on equality in Oxford. And I feel that that's like the slight elephant in the room is that it's happening in a context that is demand demanding a lot of those discussions, but it's not placing itself or situating itself within its place or within its time. Um, which, so that's, yeah, that's more like more of a question. <coughs> sort of how, how does this discussion relate to other discussions happening within sort of the, this space, which is Oxford now? And the other thing I've been thinking about, which is also related, is that we've focused a lot of on sort of economics and sort of economical capital, but in this place there is also a lot of cultural capital that is also creating different forms of inequality and I feel like a lot of discussions in Oxford about students, about uh, representation is a, a lot about mechanisms of cultural capital and exclusion that are cultural. So just what that means in the, in the sort of university context, the institutional context, that would be like some of the questions. Can I just say something? Yeah. I think that's really fascinating that you bring up all the inequality, um, I don't know if we can call it legislation or the kind of activism that's going on in Oxford right now. And I think I can say fairly that this was conceived entirely independently about all that going on. And this was partly because of the Ford Foundation giving money just because the Ford Foundation theme this year happens to be challenging inequality. So it's entirely coincidental, I think. Is that fair to say? <laughs> or is it not fair to in, say? In fact, I was, about, I was about to say um, that one of the reasons why when I heard that... Um, okay, I'm oh, totally wrong, sorry. That, that there was this project, this, the possibility of this workshop um, that we could bring to Torch, that the, the timing of that coincided absolutely with that point of the roads must fall debates where things have become very, very fraught and, and um, divisive within, if you like, the university community. It was that time when the new vice-chancellor made the statement that she did about the issue, and I thought no time like the present to, to, to kind of grab hold of this debate um, and bring it into torch and, and stage it here. Um, so and and so, so actually, Certainly, from you know where I'm sitting in my in my role as as director, and also in my dialogue with Devki, um, I was very responsive to that issue and, and thought that it was appropriate, therefore, to you know to to to, to stage the debate. And in in fact, I'm I'm sorry now, in the light of what you very validly said, Louisa, that I didn't read from my entire prepared script because I had a lot more about what you know what, what I call planned violence and the, the, the kinds of embedded violence, institutional violence that we that we have here at this university um, that would explain why it is that a statue on a plinth actually interferes with people's mental space yeah. and the way they see themselves in the world. Um, as, yeah. So and sorry so if I if I've realised that, that's my omission, 
perhaps we would have planned a session or we would have more consciously talked about things that are going on in Oxford and I think that would have been really useful. Mm. <laughs> I think if, I think possibly if Lloyd and I had been on the same panel, we because we we, we both work on you know issues of of, of discrimination um, um, and equality and diversity within institutional contexts that might have come more to the fore. So it was a, I think possibly a sort of a fallout of a, of, of combinations of, of presenters. Did you consider inviting people from the Rights Muslim movement? No. Perhaps you should answer it first. No, go for it. Um, there was a certain remit for this that it was going to be an intellectual discussion, not an activist discussion. If we'd, if we'd invited someone from Rights Must Fall, we probably would then have invited someone from the Chilwell, something like that, and it would have become probably more about Oxford than we wanted it to be. Um, whether or not that was the right decision, I don't know. Yeah. We, did, we just didn't want it to be all about the, this institution alone the, and this space. Done. <coughs> just respond to this as somebody who's outside Oxford from a university which is very unlike Oxford, although I was a student for five years in Oxford. Um, so I think it would it was important not to be parochial. You have all of these kind of issues within Oxford, but you have lots of other spaces in which you can discuss those issues. And I think we have an international group of people here who wanted wanted uh, you know to have a dialogue in a in a wider space than that. So I understand and I think it's very interesting that you've raised those issues, but I guess you're thinking, okay, well maybe there could have been a side event on that, uh, you know, an hour to hear about that. But on the other hand that could have even more reinforced the Oxford privilege, because it would be saying we're privileging the inequality issues here in Oxford again uh, over the inequality issues in the wider world. But I think you are right to point to what I think many of us are always aware of, the contradictions that there are in us as kind of left liberal intellectuals discussing issues of poverty, violence, inequality, some of which some of these inequality issues are within our own personal experience, many of them are not. So there's always a certain contradiction within this, within this, this the situation of the intellectual, if you like, how organic are the intellectuals, how do they relate to the, the, those who were oppressed, exploited, coerced. And I always have very equivocal, equivocal feelings about coming back to Oxford, which, to me, always appears as a, a citadel of privilege, the 1% in terms of the university world. But on the other hand, I think it was, I was saying, well, but nevertheless, I want to make use of these spaces that there are within Oxford for exploring in a, in a privileged way. So yeah, we should acknowledge our privilege. I think that's absolutely right in being able to spend two days talking about these issues. But we shouldn't let that disable us. Um, and we should look at the example of people like Dubois, these organic intellectuals, and think about how can we be more like that. And I would point to Devaki as another person like that, who's um, in her life and work has made these connections, these lived connections between um, 
the struggles of others and the and her own struggles as, as a woman, as a feminist in India. So I think it's good that you raise those issues, but I, those are my responses to them. Can I, sorry, can I say one more thing, and then I'll stop talking a bit. Mm -hmm. I hope we can also come to this seminar with an intense awareness, with a fully conscious awareness that this is happening in a privileged space. It's funded by the Ford Foundation. It's generously funded. Um, for me, I had some really interesting conversations. I think it was with Martin about inequality within the academy, mm. about the adjunct army in the US, about the increasing casual labor in the UK. Mm. And I was hoping we could use this space as a space for talking about inequalities in higher education as much as mm. you know, all the other very, very valid forms of inequality. So as long as we're coming to that with an awareness of Oxford as a particular privileged space, that's interesting, I think. Can you see your hand? Um, so I, I think what I gather from this very interdisciplinary setting is that um, which I think someone also um, hinted at the very beginning of your, your presentation is um, I think we do need to have this metadisciplinary um, sort of awareness if you like um, about the limits of our own discipline you know what sort of things that we can do and perhaps you know what sort of limitations that we do have and I think um, there is no, you know, I think there is a tendency to to privilege or to prioritize certain forms of responses or certain forms of action as real action, you know, um, for instance, some sort of economics versus solutions or resolutions um, versus, you know, literary responses which are seen as less, you know, um, um, less efficacious, for instance. And I think um, we do need to see how um, this different disciplinary responses actually um, complement, perhaps, or supplement um, each other. And so, so, so that's one thing. And the other thing is, how do we, you know, um, given this sort of um, division between or, or diverse sort of perspectives that we 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 constitute, how do we? Um, again, um, so this is something I mentioned very briefly yesterday. How do we forge a language of of, of collectivity? How do we um, form a language of, of solidarity, which is very much needed um, if we want to solve, you know, this real world problems. You know, um, very material um, sense of like, divisions and inequality. Yeah, that's. A few short things. This one is um, uh, one of the things that's arisen. I think is talking about different kinds of uh, different kinds of inequality. We talked about you know material versus immaterial, um, and one of the ways that this conversation has proceeded that is quite different from what I'm used to is, is um, not focusing on non-material forms of expropriation. So, uh, for example, colonial expropriation of land, which is both the stealing of the means of production, but also a kind of cultural violence. Um, and so, uh, I say that as somebody from a, um, you know, from a colonial, a settler country. Um, and it's just interesting to note the ways that those two things are quite different. But that's all I'm, that's all I'm pointing out there. Um, the uh, the second point I think is probably related, which is we we began with inequality of what that was the first first session you talked about that. Um, and it still seems to me that as the different disciplines talk about inequality in different kind of idioms, that um, we're still not quite sure what kind of goods it is that we're actually trying to gain access to. Uh, or maybe that's an overstatement. We're still kind of, at least that's under some kind of contest. 
is it dignity, self-respect, is it the ability to live a, a full, flourishing life? What you know, what kind of things is it? Um, maybe the answer in English would be quite different from the answer for an economist, I imagine. Um, yeah. So then, thirdly, I think that the question remains to me about we talked about this. I think yesterday as well as today about what kind of contribution uh, humanities can make in, in conversations on inequality. Um, you know, the registers and protocols of literary criticism, it's kind of commitments. Um, and that kind of heads in two directions, which is are we trying to reimagine the terms of political thinking such that it can encompass the kinds of experiences that literary criticism makes, literary experience makes available? Or are or are we just going to sort of turn to more towards what politics means within literature? Um, both interesting and valid kind of problems. But uh, I, my my thinking is that it's much easier to go to the second route than it is to go to the first. Um, that politics is unlikely to be expanded in the ways of literature anytime soon. Um, or economics. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, or economics. Yeah. Um, maybe expanded shows my bias there. Uh, and uh, so the final point, um, let me figure out what I wrote here. Oh yeah, the still remaining question about um, how it is that the various definitional enterprises we've all been undertaking about what inequality is or could mean um, relates to the public sphere which is so marked by political power, right? The deliberate, disingenuous, bad faith arguments that are made um, in order to fill the space that could otherwise be filled by a conversation around inequality. You know, that the moment you talk about rising inequality in, on, the one, on one kind of, in one kind of register, you'll get an answer back about, oh, the global inequality is going down, so, so neoliberal, the neoliberal project has been successful, so therefore there's nothing to see here. Um, so trying to kind of, uh, I think Francesca talked about this really well, actually, about trying to talk about how translatability is actually really important um, and also, so translatability of, of definitions to the public, but also about how actually to, to make that intervention is going to require sustained intervention at the level of politics itself, not just not just economics. You know, we actually have to change the, the the kind of political structure in order to be able to have a meaningful conversation in the public. Um, that's my sense of it. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, as an last graduate commentator to um, give feedback. Uh, so what's I gained from these two days were how there are different perspectives of inequality from different coming from different um, disciplines, um, which kind of broadened my own um, awareness of it, um, slightly changed the way I, I perceived it. Um, so thank you all. Um, what uh, what I found really interesting was a whole mental and psychological dimension and ideological dimension of inequality about how um, so I suppose like so sort of just like you do case studies and you talk with people and see their views and um, I think that's actually quite interesting to see how people who are affected by inequality perceive their inequality and I thought Jennifer's um, paper was really interesting um, in in that respect. And um, in terms of uh, what humanities and arts can do, I think in terms of perception, they can influence how 
the perception of these inequalities um, <coughs> is articulated. Um, now, it's even from a Western point of view because it, it might be slightly different in other um, regions. Um, like media, um, film, and television have a huge impact on people's perceptions of inequality. Um, there have been, I'm quite interested in. Um, um, in casting of different um, minorities and ethnic minorities in, in theatre and in um, and in film, and there have been many many uh, controversies around whitewashing um, of uh, casts and characters in uh, major films that would uh, and the characters that are whitewashed could absolutely be played by um, black people, Asian uh, by, uh, Asian people. Um, like all people from all over, like who are they supposed to uh, portray? Um, but yet there's this feeling that there is a need to to level out um, and represent those who have the most, uh, I don't know, seem to have the most right to be represented in the way. Um, so I think there is a way we can impact that by being aware that there are there are discrepancies in how people are in a, like people are represented on stage and on screen and. Um, it just made. I was just thinking as well about this series, Game of Thrones, that is absolutely a massive um, hit. Some a lot, like I suppose many of you might have heard of it or seen it, um, and it just made me aware how <coughs> there is a lot, like the, the 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 poor, the masses are always pitted against these uh, single characters. Obviously, if you're looking at a narrative, you're following a, like a single protagonist, so you kind of need to isolate one character. But there is because it's a fantasy medieval society. There is this. Um, this idea that there are the very, very, very poor and the very, very rich, and they kind of <laughs> are at odds. And often, the those that are very, very poor, um, the most disenfranchised, you don't really get to empathise with them because they are the masses. They are the, you know, the horde in a way. So I think it's quite, it's it's good to be aware of how inequalities, you know, the, even though they're very, they might seem very blatant um, in culture. They, they do sometimes embed themselves into the psyches of the people who are consumers of these um, cultural um, artifacts. So that is my perspective from a cultural point of view. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, just some very um, crude reflections. I've learned a great deal. Obviously, all of us have learned a great deal. But we have always talked of intersectionality across disciplines of, of concepts like inequality. It got sort of legitimized. You know, it's a strange thing, you might say. We knew it. But here we have economists, philosophers, all showing how it's all interdependent. You have words like difference, customs, hierarchies, actions. And then you have gender. So a sense of a composite thing called inequality, which Transcender trans or trans cut, cuts across every discipline, and therefore those who are concerned need to see all the interdependence. For example, you say the academic versus the non-academic space. So every space has inequality. Every subject looks at it, and I thought that uh, interdependence and intersectionality came out very well, and maybe that's one of the composite ideas that we might look at, so that each of us has broadened our own understanding of whether we do academic or action 
on how there's so many forces or so many issues that impinge. And I think also one of the things I enjoyed most was that you moved away only from inequality to difference and other forms, other words which show <coughs> difference. So, sorry? I want to connect something you ended the last session with. You used the word anger. Mm. And it came towards the end of, of the session. Something you said, which is solidarity, which mm. again did not figure. And I was thinking about the connection between anger and solidarity. And solidarity is almost an old fashioned that idea, mm -hmm. and anger is a very new mm -hmm. uh, and pervasive mm -hmm. uh, sense. And I'm wondering whether the need for both and the channeling of anger, I think that's how you put it, isn't, uh, isn't it ultimately connected to a point that Deity raised in her reflection this morning about what is our belief about human nature? Do we, do we what is our starting point? Do we accept good faith of other people and believe human beings to be basically good? Or do we do we start with a position of skepticism? So and th that has manifestations in how that anger gets manifested and how it's directed to other people. So I'm thinking about intersectionality. Almost everyone is privileged in some senses and, and disadvantaged in others. Right? So is so one possibility of anger, the politics of anger is a politics of competitive disadvantage. Right? That mm -hmm. my issue is more important than yours. But, you know, the other possibility is is that of a fellowship of the disadvantaged. Where mm -hmm. we can learn and teach uh, each other about different <coughs> dialogues, but but the tone and the language of the questioning will have to be different. The, the premises will have to be that, that we are together in this enterprise, rather than the us and the them. So, so I, thought, I thought that the concept of dialogue and solidarity and intersectionality and agency and anger, they were all speaking to each other in very rich and interesting ways, which, which I think ultimately boils, should make us reflect about what is our politics like, and how do we talk to others? Mm -hmm. If I can, and then go ahead. Yeah, if I can, because there's this quote um, on solidarity by um, Dr. Patek Sarah Ahmed, which I really like, and I would just like to read it out, um, you know, how she defines solidarity. So um, this is quote. Solidarity does not assume that our struggles are the same struggles, or that our pain is the same pain, or that our hope is for the same future. Solidarity involves commitment and work, as well as the recognition that even if we do not have the same feelings, or the same lives, or the same bodies, we do live on common ground. Um, so that's the yeah, end of the Yes, so I just, minor remaining questions, because I think that the main thing I've emerged with is a set of different questions than what I had four days ago, um, in part from reading all the different disciplines, in part from hearing the conversation. And one of the questions is um, what, and some of these are about what we want as academics, as people who are university affiliated or not, or in some kind of way. Um, one question is, what is research right now for university academics? Because it seems to me that one of the things that came through 
and a lot of what was being said is this sense that research is the thing that allows you not just to transform what we already know, but how we already know the thing that we know, right? So for example, um, I was thinking about, there was a report that was released, I can't remember whether it was the IMF or the World Bank released a report last week or the week before where they actually said neoliberalism is bad. Yes, last year. IMF. Yes. It's the IMF. But the interesting thing about what was reported was that that came from the research division mm -hmm. of the IMF, and that there was no way this was going to have a policy impact. But so for me, it's actually interesting to think about what research can protect, and the idea of research can protect in this new world that we're living in. So how do we want to define the category of research at this point in time? So the second question was, um, uh, what is university education going to be in the current context? Because one of the things that struck me and continues to strike me <coughs> living in this country is about my homeland and also about where I live now. There's this peculiar way in which uni universities produce national citizens, but no one ever acknowledges the fact that universities, with the exception of the Bologna process, are very nationally organized. The US has a liberal arts education for every undergraduate. So when the question comes, how does literature impact people's lives? Well, if you go to college in the US, you have to take a literature class. You don't have any choice. It's just part of the curriculum. We have a different way of doing things here. So thinking about what university education might look like in the current context under the new conditions that we're all laboring with and the relation of that education to um, inequality seems important. The other thing, and this is, I mean, maybe, I think this is just my age, but I feel like there's something important about the fact that some of the restructuring of the universities and some of the restructuring of academic life, one of the things that it's produced is a complete dissolution in two forms of faith. One is a kind of faith in the utility of secular knowledge and the pursuit of some kind of secular knowledge. And the other is a faith that your colleagues are trying to do the right thing at some level. And that, that the way that these structures are being reorganized is to produce more competition within universities, between universities, between individual academics and individual departments, and I think that's a very deliberate process that's pushing us away from the notion that across different disciplinary intellectual boundaries, et cetera, et cetera, part of what's required is a kind of faith in certain people around you. That even when they get the question wrong, even when they get the answer wrong, they might be participating in the right project. And I think that that's why this event is important, because it reminds you that there are people who have this kind of underlying secular faith of some kind that the project is worth it. We're always working on what the project might be, but the project's work it, worth it. And is there a way that we can kind of think about what that kind of faith might look like without being a problem? And then the last thing um, is, uh, how do you preserve an ongoing conversation? Because one of the things that happens in a lot of interdisciplinary environments is, um, it's events like this one. So we sort of drop in on another person's discipline and as a result of dropping in on another person's discipline, you usually end up with a fairly flat picture of what that discipline is doing, necessarily. And you don't get a sense of the, how the questions are unfolding over time within the discipline, so that the complexities of what are being presented are kind of lost on you. So how do you have a conversation that persists over time so that some of what I learned about in, what inequality means in economics 
can be nuanced and so that the next conversation I can ask the question, so where did this conversation mm -hmm. come from? Mm -hmm. Like where did that mm -hmm. conversation about what inequality means in economics come mm -hmm. from? Mm -hmm. What are the key texts that produced the things that economists talk about? So figuring out how to preserve that space of ongoing conversation. Mm -hmm. And these are, I think, are very university-based things. What is the space of the university for? Research, ongoing conversations that can't take place in other places, and trying to provide as much access as possible. Those are the questions that I ended up with in this kind of conversation. Can I just ask a point of clarification? When you say the loss of face, do you mean across the university, or do you mean on the on behalf of the faculty? I don't so think it's necessarily. Like it's, I don't think it's on anyone's. I don't think it's uh, on the behalf of the faculty. I think that one of the things that has happened. Look, academics have always notoriously difficult people. We don't get along with each other, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> However, I do think that there has been a concerted concerted effort on the part of governmental structures to disempower universities <coughs> in the anglophone world, and I think it's happening in Western Europe. And I think that one of the consequence, one of the ways that that's gone about, is to divide us against ourselves. So that, in a sense, um, we lose faith in the fact that the colleague who's sitting next to us is actually trying to achieve something of the same goal that we might be trying to achieve, because we're worried about the fact that that colleague is going to get a publication. Or in the case of all the postgraduates in the room, you still have to get jobs. You know, the fact that that kind of pressure of the market is always in every room in academia now. I mean, I don't know, but I don't think that when at least some of us were first entering academic life, the pressure of the market was an everyday fact of academic life in the same way. And that seems to me like that's a major thing to what happened. Mm -hmm. Welcome to Oxford. <laughs> it's, this is the other thing though, it's not just Oxford. This is the thing that struck me about being at Oxford, about being at Michigan State, or being at Yale. This, and there's an international movement to disempower the universities. The Bologna Accords are being implemented in the US without calling them the Bologna process. There are many good things about the Bologna process, but the kind of, the thing that always strikes me about conversations about neoliberalism in academic environments is that we understand that neoliberalism is a global phenomenon, and we also forget that we are part of the same global industry. At, you know, university education is an industry, and the people on the other side of the Atlantic are playing by the same playbook as the people in the UK. Mm -hmm. so they have their trade journals. There's lots of faith as a much wider phenomenon as well. It's affecting, afflicting all our public institutions, yeah. all our democratic institutions, and that is, you know, might be just quite lazy claims about all the politicians being crooks. Uh, for example, or even within the university, the loss of faith in university administration, loss of faith in academics and faculty from the student's point of view. Um, and, it, and a lot of it is motivated by inequality concerns, legitimate yeah. inequality and privilege and disadvantage concerns, but they have serious consequences for public life and for democracy, and, and which, is, which is why I think that how we ask the questions is really important because we don't want I'm assuming we don't want to destroy democratic institutions, uh, but that is the obvious consequence if, if this loss of faith continues. Is there one, um, one sort of Oxford-centric yeah. thought about that? I mean, uh, looking, reading kind of from 
from afar. I mean, didn't you guys just have a vote of congregation that kind of protected a certain amount of academic self-governance and kind of stopped some of the transfer of, of kind of power to the centre, which for those of us working in, in other institutions with with kind of more hierarchical structures, that I mean that 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 struck me as kind of encouraging, and even if that is in one way a kind of uh, a symptom of a certain kind of privilege that Oxford has, given a certain kind of history and, and structure and and and, it, um, and and sort of legal status, but nevertheless, <coughs> that, that's quite a, um, a valuable thing. So. You know, the, the, those, of, those of you who, who, who are based here, I think you're um, uh, pushing as far as you can within the structures you have, which are sometimes a little bit better than the structures some of the rest of us have to work within. It's, it's, yeah. it, it's a fight that, that you can uh, do to some degree for, on all our behalves. Um, I mean, one, one thought I had about this, because I, I think it, it is just terrifically useful um, to kind of figure out how people are thinking about um, about issues of inequality in in all of these uh, all of these neighbouring disciplines, and I mean the, this this kind of goes goes to your point, Lloyd, about sort of undergrad education, and if we're kind of critical about what we uh, teach our undergraduates, I mean it, it may well be that we're not really passing on the sorts of tools that people need to kind of be democratic citizens and to be people who are going to have roles in different kinds of public institutions or in different parts of, of, of public life to think about problems of inequality insofar as actually maybe people need tools from, from a range of, of different disciplines to kind of think in the right way about, um, about some of these very kind of complex and very difficult issues. And, and so I wonder if, you know, part of the kind of very long-range response to thinking about what to do about inequality is actually those of us who are involved in universities to think a little bit differently about how could we teach a bit differently or how could we organise uh, organize our, our, um, uh, our undergraduate programmes a bit differently so that there was more scope to kind of attack issues from different sides. The problems are even, they're worse, right, at the PhD level. In the, and the, I mean, this goes to your point about the kind of competitiveness of universities, we're all well aware, I take it, that our PhD students, to do well in a particular disciplinary job market, what's going to work for them is to be really uh, right at the edge of a particular technical debate, let's say, within, with, you know, that's going on in the literature at the moment, and where, um, where it's kind of going along under its own steam uh, within the terms of a, a particular discipline, where it's really, you know, the, the kind of breakthrough work, the the, the, uh, the work that we really might hope our PhD students would do, might be much higher risk and might involve patient reading and having to kind of think their way through some neighbouring disciplines and actually might end up, like, it, it might end up failing quite often, um, even if the successes then are much greater than the successes we, we have by doing business as, as usual. And, and there's a kind of very difficult ethical issue, I think, as, um, uh, you know, to, for those of us who, who, are, uh, who, are, um, who advise PhD students to kind of think about our responsibilities to individuals just to kind of 
protect themselves within this very competitive market environment in higher education as against you know the kind of hope that actually you know what are we actually up to here we're, we're trying to we're trying to make breakthroughs and trying to really think carefully by whatever means we we have to about about these very pressing issues so i think that that's a real difficulty it's not at all clear what the what the best way of confronting that is Did I see your hand, Danny? I could yeah. just respond to a couple of points I want to make. One is to pick up this point about the pressure of the market in everyday life, because this is, extends to everybody throughout their lives, I think. Yes, we are feeling it in universities, but everybody everywhere is feeling this. And I think this is one of the things that underlies the increase in inequality. We haven't talked much about what's driving the increase in inequality. But we're feeling these pressures because the mediating institutions, which were built on collectivity and solidarity, have been eroded and destroyed. So privatization of public assets, uh, uh, running down of public services, contracting out to the private sector of public services, deregulating labor markets, penetration of market relations into more and more spheres of life. It's, uh, is one and, and then the shameless use that we were talking about shame shamelessness of, of capitalists in the in in in, in the Anglo-Saxon world the kind of shameless use of the unfettered market so the very rich can in some ways liberate themselves with this but everybody else feels those pressures on uh, in everyday life and that concentration of wealth in the, in the hands of the the one percent is both a a, a kind of symptom of, uh, and a driver of this pressure of the market in everyday life. So that's a very telling phrase in terms of thinking about the factors that underlie uh, the inequalities and which make the, the necessary construction of collectivities and solidarities that much harder, which pit group against group, people against people. But I was also thinking about the discussion we had in the last session well, we brought to the fore what I called communicative action, and how, and I was also thinking about what are we going to say to maybe to the wider world about what the benefits of a seminar like this might be beneficial to us. But, and I think that it's a different idea about how can um, academics act on the world, which goes break out of this horrible narrow instrumentalist impact. Um, box in which, particularly in this country, but I think it's not the only one, the, the research assessment framework puts people <coughs> to a sort of much broader understanding of, yes, we want to communicate our thinking to people outside the academy and interact with people outside the academy. We don't want it constrained in this very narrow tick box impact, what are your indicators of impact? And so one of the things that's come out for me is this thinking of this repertoire of these different forms of communicative action, these websites that uh, Roger talked about, about uh, al altruistic, effective, effective, effective altruism, things like which I had no idea that the philosophy was engaged in that kind <laughs> of thing. I mean, the work on affirmative action, the the the, the construction of readers and addressing of publics, that goes on in the humanities, the theatre, the opera, and so forth. So all of this reaching outside the academy, but in a much 
more human and broader and transformative ways and impacts. So I wonder if that might be one of the things that we want to reflect on as something that comes out of our, of our conversations and that some of our conversations are for us within our disciplines and within the academy, but there's also about how we, we, we interact on these broader, important social, political, ethical, human questions. Um, well, I would say that it would be very interesting topic for the next seminar to kind of discuss the role of the institution and of the intellectual as maybe a public figure or the way we would like to call the intellectual. Um, I found very interesting uh, two uh, basic ideas. Uh, one is that the dialogue, the interdisciplinary dialogue was very useful, but also the dialogue between the general idea and, and the practical uh, example. So that every kind of, we were discussing this kind of, let's call it vertical line from the general uh, solidarity and equality, equality, but also where, from, from where do we kind of draw uh, food to kind of, or, or th this kind of dialogue in from the general to the particular. And talking about the particular, the local, in, in inequalities and forms of inequalities change. So we need to be very careful in, in observing uh, we, we, we have a definition today which may not be that of tomorrow and, and my, my case studies now is, is migration as it is in Italy in this moment. That is an emergency in Italy. Uh, Britain has lived the, this period in, in a different moment in history but it's also living mm -hmm. in this period now um, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll talk about this later. But, um, so change and, and uh, everyday action. So we, uh, it's interesting to look at what is happening in, in the civil society in everyday life, okay? What do these migrants do? Some of them write novels, poems, scripts for documentary cinema, or uh, uh, just practice theatrical performances. And, and some of them may become Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, some of them may be Benocchio, some of them may be utterly unknown, but they are there doing interesting things in everyday life. So that's another point we may like to consider. And I just want to throw this, uh, another thought about the Brexit very hot debate. <laughs> now, so it was kind of, as an external observer of this thing, I was kind of interrogating some uh, acquaintances of mine here, and uh, the very big problem about the Brexit, yes or no, was kind of summarized in two words. So let's go out because of migration. Let's stay in because of economic advantages. And, and these are two words we have been kind of using here, talking about inequalities, uh, economic inequality and how migrant or how 
how somebody other different uh, disturbing, <laughs> I don't know, yeah, okay, is kind of intruding in this uh, economic uh, equilibrium. So it's, that's just a scattered of thoughts. <laughs> Thank you for putting Brexit on the table. <laughs> <laughs> and migration, actually. Um, I, I agree that one of the great things for, about the, the conference has been the, well for me, the, 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 the way that every paper has had so much empirical content, apart from mine of course. Um, so I've learned a huge amount about um, the world and you know, facts about it and different ways of uh, looking at it. <coughs> um, I, did, I, do, I just wanted to mention three, three further more more abstract issues, I suppose, which we we could have talked about, which are, I think have have come up as relevant at certain points. The first is property. So we have tended to focus, like most most people, when they're talking about inequality, on inequality of wealth, and it, it kind of amazes me every day uh, how it is that human beings just kind of accept uh, property. Relations. We just think it's we're so deeply territorial. We just think it's okay for somebody to build a wall around some bit of the world and say to other people, "You can't come in." Um, so, I think if you're going to think about equality and you're going to think about equality of wealth, you need some account of property and how it's acquired and how it's justified. The the second and the third are really to do with the scope of uh, inequality. So we we have been talking, I think, entirely about. Human be existing human beings, which is fine, but there is an issue about whether uh, sentient non-human beings um, fall within the scope of uh, principles of equality. Personally, I, I think they do, yeah. which raises uh, all sorts of uh, questions about um, how human interests relate to non-human non interests. Uh, and and this, the second was. Um, Generation. So, if you think about um, equality between generations, or justice between generations, or fairness between generations, on the whole, since those discussions have, have, have um, been initiated, there hasn't been too much of a problem because generations have tended to get better off. But it looks quite likely that that isn't going to continue. And it could be that, that <coughs> this generation, or the next generation, or the generation after that, is going to inflict uh, terrible things on, on future generations uh, of, of people and other sentient beings um, who uh, the identity of whom will be affected by the decisions that we, we make now. And there, I think there are all sorts of different issues there to do with equality, which we're thinking of. It's interesting, actually, that in all the discussion that we've had across these last two days, no one has discussed the idea of commons mm. and how that is being abused by um, by mm. the neoliberal economics that we're currently mm. subject to, mm. part of. Absolutely. Yeah. And offers a very good example for generational uh, inequality or uh, abrogation of uh, usurpation of rights. I mean, the way we destroy the environment this generation 
it's argued that in India and in South Asia, there will be no water available and uh, the Himalayas are melting, uh, water is gone, drought is coming. So there's a, and this was, this generational right was pointed out 50 years ago by so many environmentalists and agriculturists saying, don't do this now, but it's actually almost like a robot. The Himalayas are being cut into make buildings and there's a huge outcry that in another 15 to 20 years, India's poor will not have water, we'll just have to get bottled water from England and Switzerland. I know it looks as if I'm exaggerating, but I, I don't think I'm exaggerating. The threats <coughs> to uh, water and uh, clean air, you would bear me out. It's just huge. Clean air because of the fuel. And that is generational irresponsibility. Um, it's interesting about intergenerational inequality. This is this is a kind of uh, very attractive topic. I don't, I don't know quite why. You know, it's um, the, the the book that I wrote last year. The publisher said, "Make sure you frame it with intergenerational inequality. People will buy that." He said, "Why?" And they said, "I don't know. But people will buy it. Maybe it's because children. You know, everybody's got children and parents." Um, the way that I could justify it myself was that. You know, environment is always, that, that, that is a, a huge issue of justice and the way that uh, younger people are going to pick up the costs of, uh, of what's gone before. Um, but one of the problems is that, is that it's not particularly strong. It, it actually, you know, the, the differences across uh, racial groups, for example, is much greater than the differences across generations, you know, in, in terms of wealth distribution, that, uh, because younger people tend to inherit what older people give them. Um, so it's just a it's just a curious kind of thing. Why why is it that this that this kind of quite soft, not particularly predictive um, version of inequality is particularly attractive at this moment, um, when the existing data that we have, which is much more strongly predictive, doesn't sell or connect as well with the public? And I, I don't know what the answer is. Many of the species, but um, boundary which we absolutely taken for granted at this conference. We've talked about humans, we've talked about human inequality, different forms of human inequality. I was thinking about the gorilla and the, who was shot in the zoo in, in the States. Um, because it, uh, some of you heard this, um, you know, he grabbed a, the gorilla grabbed a, actually I don't know if it was a male gorilla. It wasn't. It was a, it was a, it was a male gorilla. Um, grabbed a three-year-old child and was shot rather than being sedated. And wasn't the gorilla trying to protect the child? Well, it's, what, what was the gorilla trying to do? Yeah, was yeah I think it looks as if the gorilla thought the child was in danger. Mm. I think the gorilla's motives were opaque. <laughs> <laughs> there was a cartoon now, which, you know, you talked about this human and uh, non-human. So there's a cartoon now based on the gorilla incident where the refugees are coming in a boat and the gorilla, and they have they've kept the gorilla in the cage. And so the point is, now that we have the gorilla with us, maybe people will be more sympathetic to us. <laughs> yeah, two days, two, three days back, right? <laughs> On the intergenerational uh, it's, it's connected to offset debates. It's extremely right and offset on the retirement age vote yes. that is happening uh, as we speak, where um, if offset gets, what, okay, I'm, I'm told that the 
data is questionable here. Someone who has a look at the data, it seems plausible that if you get rid of the retirement age, uh, there will be a hiring freeze for the next 10 or 15, an effective hiring freeze for the next 10 or 15 years, and that the academics will find it hard to get them a job. I don't know uh, what that, but that's an intergenerational, uh, pensions is an intergenerational mm -hmm. equity issue. But, but hasn't, hasn't the battle been won? Was well, the result out? I, I thought the result was so. We have voted for majority. Oh, the congregation vote um, has been um, suspended because there was a call for a postal ballot. So yeah. the congregation voted to to keep the retirement age. Yes. And then uh, some. Then uh, there was enough of a vote to call a postal ballot. Which I, which has now been <coughs> announced, and I think the retirement age is being held at sixty-seven. So oh really? So okay, there's victory. Yeah. Good. For the next generation. <laughs> good. Yeah, for Ampere, but, uh, I think so. It's for the young people. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, just on, on Andrew's question of um, uh, why, why is this intergenerational issue more salient? I mean, isn't it just because it's, it's suddenly never been as bad, mm -hmm. right? So we've known for a long time that there are large material inequalities of, of, uh, um, of gender, of, of, of race, of, obviously of social class. But, but this thought seems like quite a new one in... in in the current uh, economic climate, the you know for for the first time, it's never been so difficult to to be um, someone in, in their twenties trying to start out in life and you okay. know get get some So uh, I mean, isn't that just part yeah. of what what explains it's that? So, isn't it? That it's also a particularly middle class phenomenon. It's mm -hmm. a middle class youth compared with their middle class parents. In their early twenties, now, are getting property, you know, getting, getting, uh, being in debt, getting a house, getting a job is more difficult than it was a generation ago for that same social strata. Uh, so if you compare yourself, if you're in that social group, you compare yourself with your parents. Yeah, you definitely worse off, and you, uh, the audience that might buy books about this. I don't know that I do. It's interesting to hear you say that. I'm always very aware when I talk about the job market today. I mean, we had an interesting conversation about it at lunch that um, I'm not quite sure whether to say this is worse than it's ever been. I mean, quite frankly, if I talk to my grandmother, I'm lucky to be at university. Exactly. So, so that's why I positioned it within this middle class. Yeah. 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 But is that a middle class? Is it? I mean. I think it's, there's a book uh, I was just reading uh, by Lauren Berlant, it's mm -hmm. called Cruel Optimism, and one of the things that she argues, and she's very careful to say this, the change is that people who had been trained to expect stability now know that they might not have it. Mm -hmm. So that there's a sense that there were a couple of generations of a very small, possibly, group of people who were taught to expect that their life would be predictable, that there would be a kind of stable base from which to work and that there would be a life path, and that social democracy would provide the safety net that made that life path possible for as broad a range of people as possible, but that one of the effects of neoliberalization has been to say to everybody, you're all precarious now. Yeah. That the well, kind of universalization of precarity, re-universalization yeah. of precarity. I think natural resources as one important thing that I feel I would like to answer you because we are responsible in, for what we've done to that exactly. process. Mm. And so we are handing over to you an earth which cannot okay, provide yeah, what yeah. we had. Yeah. 
So that's the generational irresponsibility. And that's why we're talking about it, because unless this, and also the decision that Diane talks about, the market forces, the way we are handling economy, we're making it so much more difficult. It, he may not feel it so much in Great Britain or Europe, but it's, it's a cruel uh, event and process in many of the developing countries, especially South Asia and now parts of Africa. And you see mass migration because it's drought. It's all man-made or man and woman-made. So it is a intergenerational responsibility, responsibility for the rights of the future generation is a deep crime that this generation has committed. That's an I interesting think. moment that we're in because I feel like part of the conversation is going toward the sense that things that we wouldn't normally do within a disciplinary context we're willing to do in this kind of safer environment because we're all speaking from a kind of world historical perspective. That mm. There's a sense that we can take a global view and it's okay to do that and to inhabit a position that formerly a Marxist position might permit or <coughs> a feminist theoretical position, patriarchy is universal, might permit. But that in a way, ge the generation is the way of talking about that sense that there is a universal condition and a mm. universal experience of oppression that former vocabularies allowed us to talk about, and we don't have that vocabulary available to us in the same way anymore. And I think environmentalism is another way. How do you how do you inhabit that world historical perspective? Now we can talk about environment. We can't talk of, we can't in some kind of you know fantastical way. We can't talk about uh, um, proletariat revolution. We can talk about environmentalism that we all share the environment in common. But to add to Diane's point about classes within a particular context. I think intergenerational equity across the globe is even more complex. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. when I look at my parents' generation, you know, uh, if, you know even, even my childhood, not just my parents' mm -hmm. generation, my, children, my first flight was to come to the UK at the age of 23, my first book was at the age of 14. You know, so things, things that became possible because of certain global capital moves um, were amazing uh, to my and, and for, so of course they've had terrible consequences but they also I think opened sorry, I'm a person individual beneficiary <laughs> of neoliberal capitalism mm -hmm. you know, um, an education that my parents could not have afforded mm -hmm. at all became within reach mm -hmm. yeah. No, no, you go first. No, I wanted to introduce Barbara Harris White, our colleague and, and friend who's literally come from somewhere and just to. Just Central to, Germany. Central Germany, um. just to be part of the conversation for a, a short time. So, d did you want to speak, Barbara and then Nina? Well, it's very dangerous to speak when you haven't heard the conversation. But I wanted to provide the framework for a counter argument about generational guilt, and that is that um, the crisis of nature's sink, nature is attacked providing resources, and also a sink, processing the waste out of the activity of production, distribution, consumption that humans engage in. And the real crisis is with nature <coughs> as a sink, especially the atmosphere, we don't think of the atmosphere as a sink, but it is a sink of waste gases, yeah? That has been going on for at least 200 years, cumulatively. And to 
we have to make a reasoned case why this generation, whatever this generation actually means, is more culpable than others. And I think it's not to do with, um, it's to do with knowledge that this generation has known um, generally, the information has been widespread, and yet um, it has not seen fit to act on it. And it is that where you may well be able to pin an accusation of generational culpability. Otherwise, it's that certain generations have lived through certain eras of global capitalism, um, and we are where we are. Yeah? It's not possible to stop this, it's always impossible to stop that juggernaut. So there's a generation that has lived through the emergence of finance capital and new forms of imperialism. And that is the one that you can point the finger at for knowing something about the consequences of our action and being unable to translate that into a practical project. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mine was totally unrelated. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we probably sort of waxing to a, to a close so so say whatever it was okay. <laughs> well it's it's about it's about a debate that's specifically going on in music right now um which i think might be interesting in this context and that is um considering the the migrant crisis or rather no the refugee crisis um specifically there's a debate after soas has started a project called soas goes to calais where they, they take ethnic musical instruments and um, take them to the Calais jungle and then they make video recordings of the people uh, playing on these instruments. Um, and so there have been loads of debates about whether, whether we should be taking musical instruments to people and giving them a mode of, of, of musical expression that is familiar to them when actually they don't have food, they don't have places to stay, they don't have, they don't have anything. Um, this, this kind of hierarchy, I mean it is, it's Maslow's hierarchy I guess, but the hierarchy of, of what people have a right to and whether we should be addressing their, their cultural rights before we are addressing their very basic um, rights to food and, and, and um, housing um, and right to citizenship, the right to national identity, which is of course something that they are very much kind of robbed of right now. So I don't know, like I think in this context that would be an interesting uh, conversation to have because it's not an economic debate, it's very much a, a cultural and human rights debate. It just reminds me of a slogan that cares, working class women's struggles. I think in Boston, the US said, give us bread, but give us roses. So it was not saying we don't need bread, but we don't just need bread. So maybe if the musical instruments could be combined with the other forms of, of help, but the musical instruments could still play an important role. But it's also about who, who gets to decide. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, but maybe they asked, did they ask for some? Or no. somebody just turned up with some? Yeah. I'd like to give an example of uh, why uh, interdisciplinary education in the education stream is a disaster. I mean, you can have specialized education and then come to have these conversations. I say this because I'm on the governing body of a center in India, which uh, Diane has visited called the National Institute of Advanced Studies. They were raising the flag that we are the first interdisciplinary uh, academic institutions and they give scholarships to PhDs. What happens is the name of the game today is specialization. 
super specialization is what the market demands. Within finance, you have to have finance, finance, something special. So when these poor children, I call them children, the young students came up with their PhDs, there was no place that they could enter because they wanted to know what is the deeper work that you've done. So it's so important now to recognize that the market wants super specialization. You may be a financier, but within finance, have you done stocks or have you done this? And so it's a, it's a very big uh, challenge to an attempt to do cross-cutting education. It may happen after you're working, be like we are doing now, but as an educational idea, it has collapsed, it. yes. I don't know, Devki, market wants super specialization. Democracy wants some humanities, some history, some sense of science. Um, maybe the answer is to have liberal arts undergraduate education, but, but you specialize there as well. I think, yeah. I think it's a huge loss that, you know, I teach 18-year-olds law, law without politics, without uh, mm -hmm. literature, without philosophy, and I think it's terrible. It's it is, terrible to, to teach I'm them only following history. what we are saying, that the current markets, which is what everybody wants a job, uh, is so specialized and so moved away from the kind of work we were all doing that philosophy is not at all taught anymore. Mm -hmm. English is not taught anymore. All the students in the three universities in which I'm on the governing body go only to engineering and technology. I agree with that, yes. At the same time, I'd also say there is a way that, and I say this as someone who has like a name chair or whatever, there is a way that academics, we depersonalize our own role as a market, that we are the market. We make the decisions yeah, about sure. who we hire, the people who are in this room who are senior faculty members. We are the ones who at some level determine what counts as adequate work for a job at Oxford, a job wherever else. So I think that there's some extent to which, yes, there is an external market that's saying we want hyper-specialization, but there's also an academic market that's sure. saying we want hyper-specialization. Yeah. And that seems consequential to me. Yes, we you seem like you disagree. Yeah, to work on it. <laughs> Just that my experience has been different. Okay. That I found that Oxford has encouraged multi and interdisciplinary scholarship, mm. new degrees, new thematic disciplines. Um, in the little cabbage patch that I've inhabited for the last 30 years, mm. <coughs> there's been very little outside pressure against a move towards experiments in interdisciplinarity. Mm -hmm. And now across science, social science, humanities, boundaries. I think and what so I'm trying to say I is think that what's I happening in the core of the disciplines that's responding to refs and RAUs and this kind of thing may be different, but there's a, another kind of process that's going on in the academy in which new ways of thinking are being um, struggled for and <coughs> sometimes achieved. So the old disciplines will talk about making master's, masters in Oxford and these may be Mickey Mouse masters, but they are rigorous and difficult and promote new ways of understanding the world. <coughs> so uh, I just want to clarify, I'm, I'm a, I support interdisciplinary <laughs> mental growth. I'm just saying that in some contexts, it has been trashed because of the market. Sorry, what, what some of those programs are, just to have a, a sense of... Okay, so I was hired as an economist, and 10 years in, was involved in setting up development program, <coughs> which is sociology, anthropology, history, economics, 
and politics. Yeah? And ten years on, was asked to set up contemporary South Asia, contemporary India, which is environment, international relations, politics, political economy, poverty, and anthropology. Yeah? And the science, social science, humanities is research into what causes greenhouse gases in the informal economy. So it's possible to do that here. Um, it's not easy, but it, 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 has been, it has been possible. Now, I think two things are going on, what you said and what David said, but also something else is going on. No, I completely agree. I think all I was trying to point to was the fact that in my experience in academic environments, there's often a moment in the conversation where um, the terrors of the market get displaced to a market that's external to what we do, that somehow we're not responsible for a market. I don't think that's what you were saying, but, but I completely agree with you that there's places to do it elsewhere, but that's exactly the point. We construct the market that we participate in, and some people are deciding to encourage interdisciplinary work, which is important, and some people are encouraged or discouraging that kind of work, and that's a market. We're making a market. Can I just speak from personal experience on that? I've said to a few of you here, I'm all for interdisciplinarity. It's a wonderful thing. And I'm very excited that Oxford now has Torch, which it didn't have when I was a master's student here. But just from my own experience, I've trained in English, have been in history for the past three years, and I'm now at Torch, and my email address is at Humanities. So I'm not in a faculty, which is a great situation. It gives me a lot of intellectual freedom. It's then interesting on the job market, and for the ref, it will be interesting because I'm encouraged to go down disciplinary streams. Mm -hmm. So the only point I'd say here is we have all these exciting inter interdisciplinary ventures. We don't quite have the institutional channels yet for early career researchers such as myself to know where we belong and in the academy. And in the humanities, we don't yet have the funding. Yeah. To, I'd be very intrigued to have the conversation, Barbara, as to how you folks in certain more in social sciences have been able to fund these interdisciplinary <coughs> masters because at the moment we have big plans for interdisciplinary masters within humanities, but absolutely no way of getting of buying staff time to 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 teach to deliver these no, masters. This is where your point is totally relevant. That in all these plans, <coughs> we have to produce business plans, business proposals. We always have to make a profit. Yes. But we now, well, I mean, it's not, not to get into the kind of the, the tiny detail of this, but, you know, we, our, our profits are taken away from us. Even though we do make a profit, our profits are... <laughs> it goes back to your comment about what happens with the interdisciplinary programs is exactly what you were just describing. At a certain moment, even those of us, I was trained in a fairly interdisciplinary way, there's a moment where for certain people, I... I had to become an American literature person. Absolutely. I had to do that to get through the door. And I think that's more difficult. When, and that's a fact of what the institution decided it was going to hire. And when I say the institution, I mean us, the faculty members. We make those decisions. That's what autonomy is. To go back to your comment about the governing body votes, we probably have more autonomy here than a lot of places. No, remember I'm talking about a particular place the particular thing which is happening, if the, the middle class has come into education now much more to early or the upper caste, and these children are coming to education in the hope of a job, exactly. and especially a non-manual job, you know. 
I'm very, I was only describing that particular space uh, in India, in the south of India, where if you do this, you don't get where you want to go. But I'm not, therefore, against the entire uh, schema and spirit of interdisciplinary. In fact, this conference is again emphasized in my mind that the only way we can tackle any issue in the world is through interdisciplinary knowledge. It can come in education, it can come in conferences, it can come in papers, but it's critical. Folks, there's so much more to say, um, but you know, energies are finite, and um, and also there is some refreshment. Um, so um, I invite you very much to go over, have a glass, um, continue the conversation. We 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 have this space for uh, a bit longer. Some of us have to have to leave, so um, you know we need to give people the opportunity to do that. There's a very, very important thing, though, we have to do before we all disperse, and that is from Deb Keir and I to say thank you to Alice Kelly, who's done wonderful work. <laughs> 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 I'm going give it to you later. Um, so thank you. Thank you all for coming. And we'll be in touch about um, what we do, you know, how we carry this forward. Um, Certainly, we'd like to pull, um, you know, maybe short summaries of your papers, abstracts, and also the, the, the reports from the, from the observer commentators. Okay. Can I ask from the participants' point of view, uh, thank you to Becky and Erica for organizing Absolutely. this. Absolutely. Support, yeah. yeah. And